Hi, this is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. And before we get into this week's episode, I'd just like to ask you for a favour or to remind you, if you're able to leave a rating or review of this podcast, uh, wherever you listen to it, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. It certainly helps with the rankings and uh, gets more people listening and the, the more the merrier. So I appreciate that. Uh, so let's get into this week's topic then and something very dear to my heart, <laughs> of course, uh, it is how to attract a great financial advisor. Uh, now, of course, I must declare an obvious conflict of interest uh, being a financial advisor myself. Um, of course, you know, if I bang on about, you know, how good financial advisors are and how valuable the service is, uh, of course, you know, I've got a conflict of interest. I've, I've got a vested interest in, in saying that. Uh, but I thought this was an interesting topic. In fact, it's been in my sort of list of topics to write about for quite some time. And I undenied about whether I should, in fact, write about it uh, because I really didn't want to come across uh, with any sort of arrogance or anything like that. But uh, what I thought um, was interesting was to really share, I guess, my insights as a financial advisor on um, what is a growing imbalance between the number of uh, good clients available to financial advisors and the number of good financial advisors available to clients, uh, because I'm going to argue that there's not a, there's a there's a shrinking number of good financial advisors, and it makes it harder to uh, harder for people to you know go and find one and and then and then work with one. And I just wanted to talk through some of the implications, I guess, and insights uh, related to that. But uh, And I wanted to do it in a way that didn't come across arrogant, like I'm coming across saying um, advisors are great and, you know, you should do everything possible to make them happy. <laughs> you know, of course, that's not the, that's not the case. Uh, so obviously, you know, a financial advisor's job is to help you develop a plan, implement that plan over many years so that you're able to achieve your financial and lifestyle goals. And that includes, of course, navigating the inevitable changes in your circumstances, maybe even your goals over time, uh, markets, investments, and and so on and so forth. Uh, and uh, most importantly, knowing when to stick to the plan and when to, al- when to alter it, uh, because I think that's a, a really important thing as well. Now, it's obvious that if um, an advisor can help you achieve your financial and lifestyle goals, that that outcome is incredibly valuable in monetary and non-monetary terms. So, you know, it gives you that safety and comfort. Um, and in, in monetary terms, possibly it, it results in you building several million dollars worth of net worth. So, you know, it's a good outcome. And it's very likely if you're, that you're successful in doing that, that any fees that you've paid that financial advisor will really be a small fraction of the value that you've enjoyed. So for those reasons, I look at it and say, well, a great financial advisor um, can be an incredibly valuable resource. Uh, But just like in any profession, you know, the best people are typically in the highest demand. And the problem is that uh, over the last uh, three years, so since 2018, uh, the number of financial advisors in Australia has shrunk by about 30%. Um, which hasn't been really that well documented, at least in the general press. It has in, uh, you know, in publications that target the financial planning industry. 
Um, uh, but according to a research house called Rainmaker, uh, about 9,000 uh, financial advisors have left the industry since 20, 2018, uh, and there's now less than 20,000 financial advisors in Australia. You know, if that happened in, in most other industries, that would be a, a relatively big news story on uh, skill shortages and so forth. Um, so why has that happened? Well, there's been lots of legislative changes um, and really changes to the industry over that time. Um, uh, a lot began before the Royal Commission started, um, but obviously the Royal Commission really uh, pushed it forward and uh, advisors have either decided to change careers and a lot have retired as well. Probably the biggest change was the banning of commissions. You know, commission-based advisors, um, uh, you know, couldn't pivot to, um, to, to a sort of fee-for-service arrangement. Um, their core competency was probably salesmanship rather than advice itself. Um, uh, but there's been mandatory education standards uh, that have increased. You now have to have tertiary education um, uh, rising insurance costs, ever-increasing compliance obligations and so forth. The industry has really changed a lot over the last few years. Um, now, these uh, changes have obviously contributed to lifting the bar, you know, increasing the professionalism in the industry, and that's good for both the industry participants and also uh, clients as well. Um, uh, and, you know, it probably needed a bit of a clean out, let's be honest. You know, there was probably some advisors, sort of commission-based advisors that probably needed to move on. Uh, and that's probably in the best interest. But the reality is there's a skill shortage. Um, and given that uh, the biggest thing that you pay a financial advisor for is their experience, uh, you're not going to fill that skills gap uh, overnight because you can't replicate, you know, you can't, there's no fast track to... Uh, getting 20 years of experience and so forth. So, of course, when finding a good financial advisor, it's my view that it's really about the person, not about the business. You can have a great brand, uh, a really big, uh, maybe even a, a multinational um, uh, financial services um, business, you know, with a great brand and well-known brand, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, um, uh, if I was choosing a financial advisor, knowing what I know, being one, uh, I know that it's really about the person that's sitting across uh, the desk from you, you know, and, uh, you know, a financial advisor is a very high trust uh, relationship because ultimately um, you want to give them the, you, you would just want to say to them, okay, this is my goals, help me achieve it. And then let them really guide the outcomes and the the process and those sorts of things. Ultimately, that's what you're paying them to do. They know better um, or they know best and uh, and ultimately that's what you need to do. Um, now, of course, that, that puts a lot of trust and faith in that financial advisor. So, of course, then it's very important then you find someone that you're really comfortable with, that you really trust and that you've got that sort of personal or emotional connection element. Now, second to trust is experience. And I think it's a very close second, by the way. Um, look, it is possible to systemize, you know, some facets of advice formulation uh, and so forth. But what you can't systemize or automate is experience. And experience, I think, is the most valuable thing a financial advisor can share with you. You know, knowledge, um, you can replicate knowledge. You know, knowledge uh, tells you what to do. Experience tells you when and how to do it, uh, which I think is the most critical. We can find knowledge. You can Google anything these days. 
but when and how to do it is really the key element. That's where you're going to make the mistakes. Uh, and that's really where a financial advisor is going to help you stop making mistakes. And I'm a strong believer that um, a, a financial advice practice really isn't scalable. And the reason it isn't scalable is because it really is, or, or at least a lot of the value is dependent on the experience of the advisor sitting across the desk from you. If they've got, you know, if they've spent 20 years talking to tens of thousands of investors, um, studying and seeing the outcomes of, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of different investment decisions, it's that that's the sort of experience you want to lend against because that experience will help you avoid making mistakes and get it right the first time. And if you do that, avoid making mistakes and get it right the first time, then you have a great chance of achieving your financial lifestyle goals. And as we discussed at the beginning, that's really where uh, all the value is. You know, there's incredible amount of value of that. Uh, but there's no shortcuts, obviously. You know, a, a, an advisor with 20 years worth of experience, of course, is going to have more value to share with you than an advisor with two years of experience. Uh, but as I said, there's no shortcuts to getting that 20 years of experience. Now, I think it's important to understand the the supply-demand um, equation here with, with a really good financial advisor that does have a lot of experience. The reality is that there's a limit to the amount of clients that a financial advisor can look after. And usually that's in the range of maybe 100 to 200 clients. Um, but of course, it really depends on the complexity of each client, you know, so... Um, but but somewhere there there is a limit, of course. Um, and so it's very important then for a financial advisor to choose their clients carefully because there's a, is, you're dealing with a, a scarce resource here, which is you know a lim- limited number of clients. So you've got to choose wisely. Um, and of course, there's some really good uh, commercial reasons uh, for this. But I think, uh, at least if I speak uh, for myself, the most important. Uh, reason that I want to choose my clients carefully is because of the scarce resource of time. You know, there's a limited amount of time that I'm able to share with a limited amount of clients. So the most important thing that I need to do, the way I think about it, and I don't don't think it's really that different, uh, I don't think differently to, I think, probably other advisors. Uh, So it's really important for me to share my time with the clients that are going to benefit the most. And the, the, the only reason I really come to work uh, every day is the personal satisfaction I get from helping my clients. You know, from working with clients that I might have been working with for 10, 15 years or longer, um, reflecting on the journey where, you know, w- what their position was when we started working together and what their position is now, and, and appreciating that the advice that I've provided over that time has really contributed to those outcomes. That gives me a tremendous uh, sense of personal satisfaction. And if that wasn't present, I, I don't think I'd come to work. You know, after building a, a firm for 20 years, um, I certainly don't need to work five days a week. I could work less if I wanted to. Um, it's, it's really a case of uh, not necessarily doing it for the money, uh, but really doing it for that personal satisfaction. So then that might seem altruistic to some degree, but really it's a, it's a purely selfish pursuit because it's really what... Um, you know, what, what motivates me. But thankfully, you know, my client's interest and my interests are perfectly aligned because if I'm choosing clients that I know that I'm going to deliver significant value to, well, I win because I get the personal satisfaction and they win because obviously, you know, I, I'm not uh, um, suggesting that they engage my service if I'm not absolutely convinced that I'm going to add value. 
And as I said, I don't think uh, that I'm thinking any differently than probably other good advisors. Other good advisors are going to value their own time and value their own advice. And the reason they're in the game uh, is because of the personal satisfaction uh, rather than doing it just to you know, earn an extra couple of dollars. So how does a financial advisor then consider you know, whether there's scope to add value? Because I think this is an important um, thing to understand, uh, both so that you can understand you know, how an advisor is going to think about your financial position or you're potentially taking on you as a client, um, but also so how you can assess the value uh, of, of whether a financial planning relationship is, uh, is worthwhile in your circumstances. Uh, so it, it's obviously going to depend on different client circumstances, but I guess probably the most uh, common considerations is the amount of surplus cash flow, investable cash flow that you've got, uh, the value and type of existing investments and the complexity of your situation. They're probably the the three things that would uh, inform an advisor about how much scope there is. So, of course, if you've got, you know, a a sizable investable cash flow, um, you know, I I think something in excess of 30,000, but certainly in excess of, you know, if you're getting close to $50,000 a year, you know, there's a lot of scope to add value because there's a lot of opportunities where you can direct that 50000 you know, maybe you can put some of it towards servicing investment property, some of it towards maybe super, some of it towards investing in shares and so forth. There's a lot of scope. Whereas if you have $20,000 a year to invest, for example, and the advisor is going to charge you $5,000 a year, well, that eats 25% away of your surplus cash flow. So that's not a good outcome. Uh, and, you know, if you're going to diminish someone's surplus cash flow by 25%, you know, you want to you only want to do that if you can uh, more than make that money back, uh, which is quite possible in the long run, but a lot more difficult to do. Uh, Size and complexity and type of investments, uh, that's another important consideration. Uh, You know, if if someone's got a share portfolio of $3 million, there's a bit of work to do to make sure that's optimised because even a small increase in percentage returns makes a big dollar value difference. Uh, so you want to spend the time required to make sure that's optimised. If someone has $3 million invested in property, well, that's a different style of assets. It, it's kind of not set and forget, but it's it certainly doesn't take nearly as much time uh, to manage a share portfolio. Um, uh, sorry, as much time to manage a property as it does a share portfolio. So in that circumstances, you know, if someone's very property heavy, you know, th- there is limited scope typically. Uh, for an advisor to to add value. Now, of course, there's some other considerations that an advisor is going to take into account. Uh, just like you, the client, want to make sure that they're able to work with the advisor. The advisor is also going to want to make sure that it's going to be enjoyable to work with you. Um, and so there's a few things that an advisor is going to consider. Uh, willingness to actually follow the advice. Uh, I know that kind of sounds silly, um, but what's the point of um, paying for advice if you're not going to follow it? Uh, that's just wasting your time, your money and the advisor's time. Um, it, it sounds a bit funny because, uh, you know, sometimes people seek out an advice relationship, but really they just want their decisions validated by someone else rather than necessarily taking the advice. So uh, that's something to think about. Um, uh, you know, the clients that are most enjoyable to work with, I think, are are modest, they're appreciative of your time, care and advice, and 
uh, and and uh, uh, genuinely genuinely respectful of that. Um, and, and they kind of recognise that you're the expert at the end of the day. Look, it's not bowing down to the advisor or doing any of those sorts of things. I think that there's just got to be a basic mutual respect between uh, client and advisor. And when there is, uh, you know, that works best. Now, let's talk about the cost of advice. Well, I think this is a kind of interesting um, uh, interesting conversation around what does financial advice cost? Um, in my experience, if you ask 10 people that one question, you're going to get very wide answers. Some people will tell you $200, <laughs> some people will say 2000 some people will say, I'll be prepared to pay $10,000. Um, it's, I guess that it's very difficult to assess the cost of advice. So let me just talk about, you know, talk about that topic for a second. Uh, and Ben Graham, you know, the economist Ben Graham taught Warren Buffett at university um, that price is what you pay, value is what you get. Uh, so judging a, a product or service, any product or service, on price alone, uh, really only gives you one half of the equation. Um, it's not difficult to conceive that financial advice can can be, could be, incredibly valuable. You know, it can create millions of dollars of wealth and secure your family and, and those sorts of things. So, of course, when considering fees... Uh, you've got to consider value and value outcomes at the same time. Uh, so let's talk about fees. I mean, the first thing to consider is the amount of experience that an advisor has. Uh, you know, think about an advisor that has, you know, multi-decades of experience that maybe has their own investment portfolio uh, that has got themselves into a position where they can choose to do the type of work that they want to do. Um, someone in that circumstance isn't going to sell their time for $100 an hour. You know, they're going to value their time because otherwise they could be off doing something else. So why would they share their time with someone that doesn't value it? Uh, so, of course, you should expect to pay more if you're getting more experience, just like in any industry. If you go and find the top barrister in a particular subject matter, you know, they're going to be expensive because they're very good at what they do because they've got a lot of experience. The second element to understand is there is actually a cost for delivering advice. Uh, you know, there's a lot of compliance obligations, education costs of um, staff, ongoing education, keeping up to date, um, taking on the liability for advice. You know, you need to be commercially rewarded for that. So there is an actual, um, apart from the experience reward, there's a kind of raw cost for the actual advice itself. Um and finally, my other comment, which is incredibly important, um, is that paying a high fee does not guarantee a good result. Uh, you know, the more you pay for a car, typically the better car you get. And it's the same with lots of other products. It's not that with financial advice. Um, I have seen some clients pay some extraordinary fees for terrible outcomes. Uh, and it's kind of a double whammy because you've not only paid high fees, so you're worse off there, but then you've not achieved good results or good outcomes or good investment returns, and so you've paid the price twice in that regard as well. So so fees, level of fees, is no indication of the quality of the advice. As I said, and as, I, as I've said a couple of times during this podcast, it really does come down to um, the philosophies and, uh, uh, and the experience of the actual advisor. So to wrap up, let me leave you with some thoughts uh, on you know what I would do if I was in your shoes. 
Uh, I guess, firstly, you've got to recognise that great advisors are, are rare and becoming probably rarer. Um, there, there's not an abundance of uh, great advisors, I don't think. Um, lots of people left the industry, and it's not like we can just replace them overnight. Uh, you know, people will need to go to uni now and study financial planning, but then they've got to get that experience to get themselves in a position where they can uh, provide that advice. Uh, my tips for finding a good uh, financial advisor um, include getting a referral from someone that has worked with an advisor that has built wealth and is very happy with that outcome. You know, I, I think if someone's travelled that road already and, and they've been very satisfied, uh, then I think that's a really good starting point. Um, I think every advisor should be able to articulate their investment philosophy and approach. Now, of course, every advisor's articulation of that will sound convincing. I mean, no one's going to come up with an unconvincing investment philosophy. So, of course, they're all going to sound convincing. But then you've got to look for the evidence that works. And quite often, uh, a really good indicator is benchmarking of returns. You know, the the advisors that I think have a, a weak investment philosophy will um, tell you what it is. It sounds very great, but then when you ask how is it returned compared to other benchmarks, industry super funds, those sorts of things, they don't do the comparison. It's kind of all smoke and mirrors, uh, and that's why I really don't understand why anyone wouldn't just adopt an evidence-based approach. Because if you're adopting an evidence-based approach, you're not really trusting the advisor you're trusting in the investment philosophy. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, if, if it's worked 100 times before, you know, then that kind of reduces your risk. I've said it before, but, you know, ensure the advisor has extensive experience across many asset classes, especially property and shares. You know, uh, they should be an investor themselves, eat their own cooking, invest in the same assets they recommend uh, to their clients. Uh, and realise you might need to wait. You know, busy financial advisors typically have waiting lists. Uh, so um, choosing the, the right advisor is important. And if you've got to wait a, a few months to, uh, to get in the door, well, um, that's, uh, that's just something that needs to happen. And just think about it uh, leading up to making that decision. Uh, don't, don't think that you can just uh, necessarily turn up and find a good financial advisor tomorrow. It, take, it can take a bit of lead time. So I hope that's been useful. Uh, I certainly hope it hasn't come across with any level of arrogance because absolutely there is none here. Uh, but I really just wanted to kind of share these insights into, you know, how a financial advisor sort of thinks about that new client engagement process. Until next week, bye for now.